0: morning. And I have to say um, let's start off, it is a great, great privilege to serve alongside each and every one of you that call this your faith family home. And for those of you that are visiting today or tuning in for the first time today, we want you to know that we thank you for joining with us, for taking a risk with us. and I also want you to know that you're always welcome here as a part of this faith family where we seek to introduce people to Jesus by, sharing in hope living with purpose for the sake of others. Now, to my left, to your right, you'll notice that there's some candles lit. And and today's a significant day in the life of the Big C Church. We're a little C church, part of the Big C Church, the Christian Church, Christ Church, across all ages and across the world. And today's a day that we recognize as All Saints Sunday. It's a day where we remember those in faith that have gone on before us, those that have died. And some of those are even loved ones. Some of those have even died for their faith when you look over the ages. And today is a day in which we give thanks for them. I don't know about you, but I am I am indebted to a number of people, to a number of people, that their faith in Christ was so compelling to them that they chose to share him with me. And I know I'm not alone this morning. In fact, I imagine nearly all of us, if not all of us, are here today because of what someone else did in planting a seed in us. Even if we're seekers today, even if we don't yet know Jesus, we're here because others have faithfully sown into our lives a curiosity, a sense of questioning. Amen to that? And, And what is amazing to us is one of the best ways we can honor the saints is to saint ourselves. One of the best ways to honor the saints is to recognize that the faith that was entrusted to them is also entrusted to us, to contend for and to share with others. Can I get an amen to that? Amen. amen. So that we're going to honor them today and we're going to celebrate communion recognizing the connection there. And, and if you hadn't had a chance to light a candle later in service, feel free to just come up. Light a candle and honor someone that sowed into your life that has gone on before. That's what All Saints Day is about. But today is also November. As Michael said, you know, we've transitioned from October to November and, and, and we're looking forward to a, 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 a holiday coming up, right, in November. The retail wants to go all the way to Christmas, but but there's this little holiday called Thanksgiving, and and we're switching gears to dive into a conversation on what I believe is the most compelling reason for us to stand on the shoulders of the faithful before us and to continue to contend for the faith, and that's simply God's grace. God's grace. But just what is grace? Well, to help get us started, I want you to watch a clip from one of my favorite holiday movies that's right before we begin since this is aunt bethany's 80th christmas i think she should lead us in the saying of grace Oh, oh. Grace. oh. what dear grace grace she passed away 30 years ago they want you to say grace The Blessing. I Pledge Allegiance. (laughs) All laughing aside the grace that we're going to unpack beginning today and over the next several weeks is far more significant, far more life-changing, far more life-giving than simply asking God to bless our meals. And we should ask God to bless our meals. The provision that he's made possible for us absolutely should do that. But the grace that we're going to talk about is a grace that we hear declared in Jesus' coming that he came in grace and truth. And I can't think of a better place to start than with a man and whose witness once scorned those that follow Jesus. His name is Paul. And he encountered Jesus and had for a radical change in his outlook and his life as to who God is and how God loves him. And he has a lot to say about grace. And so I want to turn to one of his letters that he wrote to the church. To the church in Corinth, he wrote a number of letters. We believe he wrote up to four letters, but only two of them survived and are canonized in our holy scriptures. And so I want us to turn to the second letter to the church in corinth to chapter 5 beginning with verse 11 and i invite you if you've got a bible app or if you've got a bible handy open it up because we're gonna we're gonna marinate in this today because i believe that god has a word for us through paul's writing to the church beginning in verse 11 we read this since then we know what it is to fear the lord we try to persuade others what we are is plain to god and i hope it is also plain to your conscience We're not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. If we are out of our mind, as some say, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, a new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. As God's co-workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, in the time of my favor, I heard you and in the day of salvation, I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me this morning? Merciful Father, I thank you this morning for so many things. From recognition of the staff that I serve alongside to each and every person hunger for more of you that walked in these doors or tuned in this morning. Lord, I pray that through the meditation of our hearts and minds and the words of my mouth, that they would be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And I ask this in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. So we begin here with Paul writing, since then, since then we know what it is to fear the Lord. Which begs the question, since what? What is it that's leading Paul to say, since we know what it's like to fear the Lord, what is it that he's referring to? Well, we don't have to look very far. If you look just one verse prior, to what we began reading in today in verse 11. Go back to verse 10 of chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians. We read him writing this. He says, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. And if you zoom out on the broader writings of Paul, what you can find is that there's really two things that are on his mind often. Those two things are salvation and judgment. And when you hear that, you know, some of you might hear that and say, well, well Paul's just a religious fanatic, right? But, but the truth is, is that Paul deeply and intimately knew God's word and in and, and, and revealing and reading and studying of God's word, he began to recognize what was on God's mind. And what's on God's mind is the very same thing, salvation and judgment. E- even John, the follower of Jesus, the one that wrote a gospel account for us, an eyewitness account, in the, in the verse that all of us know, whether you're Christian or not, it's the one that's on the billboards, it's the one that some people put on the hashtags when they're playing football, you know, on, on their faces. John three sixteen. listen to this, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Inherent in that, that whole idea of perishing, where does perishing come from? Well, we all die physically, but we're talking about emotionally, we're talking about relationally, we're talking about spiritually, the death that comes when we allow sin into our life. That's the judgment that comes to those of us that continue to live in that. But God's not concerned with that as much as he's concerned with offering us a way out of it by bringing in and offering his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish. But what? eternal life that's salvation that's salvation we see judgment and salvation right there inherent in one of the keystone verses we find in john's gospel and 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 the thing is is that jesus truly came to bring salvation from judgment and a lot of times we like to think that jesus is just kind of this mamby-pamby soft jesus but he's not if you read the red letters he has some 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 things he's trying to call attention, get our attention with. And and one of those things is the inherent judgment that will come to everyone and anyone in his second coming. In fact, if you look at Matthew's account, if you look at Matthew's gospel, I encourage you to look at Matthew chapter 24 and 25. It's all red. It's red letters. It's Jesus's own words. And in those two chapters alone, just those alone, he's talking about when he's coming back and when the judgment of God will come with it. And he says this, and those people are like, well, tell us when it is. Can you give us a clue? And he's like, you're not going to know what time it is. You're not going to know what day it is when I return. He says, but it's going to be like this. And he gives us three examples in chapter 25. He he likens his return once to like a wedding. And I went to a beautiful wedding yesterday. My, My cousin got married. It was amazing. It was beautiful up in the North Georgia Mountains. But he's talking about the bridesmaids that are waiting for the bridegroom. Half of them eagerly are prepared and waiting and looking for the return of the bride, the bridegroom. But the other half procrastinate. And in their procrastination, they don't have enough oil in their lamps. And so when they go and get the oil, the bridegroom comes. Everybody goes in the wedding and they're left out in the dark. They're left out from the party. The second illustration he gives is that of bags of gold. He he likens it to, to a master coming back. And having entrusted gifts and talents to those that serve underneath him. And, and the the two, two out of the three servants he gave these gifts to, they invest. They pour those back out. And they, they use those gifts they've been given. But the third one buries his talent, buries those gifts. And what do we see is he's left out. He's left in darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then the last one is sheeps and goats. And I don't know about you, but both of those stink. Sheeps and goats, Right? But, but here we find him separating sheep from goats. He likens his return to that, where he separates the goats from the sheep. In other words, what he's saying, he's separating the sheep. The sheep being those that, because of their faith, they're so compelled to contend for the sake of other people. They feed them. They clothe them. They give them water. They go visit them in prison. They invite strangers into their own home. And then the goats, on the other hand, are those that they just are complacent. And they're kind of whimsical about all of that. In fact, they have no concern for other people. And what does he say at the very end of chapter 25? He says this. Then they, talking about the goats, will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Judgment and salvation. We see it throughout all of God's scripture. And the point I'm trying to make here is that Paul, by speaking to this idea that we're going to appear one day before the judgment seat of Christ, it's not his idea. It's God's. It's God's doing. It's what Jesus came to, to do in, in delivering us was to make salvation possible before the judgment comes. Clearly, salvation and judgment are on the mind of God. They're on the mind of Paul. Dare I say, perhaps, maybe they need to be on the mind of of each of us today now saying that unfortunately many have gotten preoccupied with god's judgment and you know who that is maybe some of you have gotten there and you're preoccupied with it and and the truth is is that paul could have easily easily done the same in fact prior to knowing jesus dare i say i think that's kind of where paul lived out where he hung out was focusing in on the judgment of God. He held God's name in such high esteem that he wanted to put anyone to death that he thought was mimicking or mocking the name of God, including those that followed Jesus. But his life was forever changed when he met Jesus. And his understanding of who God is, his his understanding of the love that God has for him as well as for you and for me, well, it changed Paul. So look back at this verse, this this, this chapter that we've been reading out of chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians. You find what Paul is saying is compelling him. And I think it's a pretty important thing for us. In in verse 14, he says, For Christ's love compels us. Because we're convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but... Y'all know I love it when there's a but in Scripture but for him who died for them and was raised again. You see, Paul wasn't dwelling on the judgment. He was compelled by God's love. Let me say that again. Paul's not dwelling on God's judgment. He's being compelled by God's love. You see, it wasn't his judgment, but rather his love that motivated him. And if you look further, and you look at this writing, what you see is what motivates him is not what's in it for him, but what's in it for those that he can share God's love with. What compels him is a gift that he recognizes that he's been given this gift of reconciliation, that he's been given this opportunity to reunite with God and be made right with God because of what Christ did. And the gift is not just for him, but for him to share with all and everyone. And that's what he's writing about. Because as we see, if we look, if we pick up verse 16, we find these words. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view that we once regarded Christ in this way. We do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sin against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. Reconciliation. It's listed four times. Four times right here. So exactly what is reconciliation what does it mean to be reconciled well well here's a a short meaning for reconciliation reconcile to reconcile means to exchange being enemies for being friends it's to exchange being enemies for being friends so to my alabama fans and to my georgia fans out there today i love you in the name of jesus but war eagle right well there we go right Go dogs, okay. But 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 truth is, that's what God is doing here. And and Paul, in writing this to to, to the church in Corinth, he, he gives us an image of what reconciliation looks like. Listen to this. I, I, just some things I've noticed in this scripture. It says, reconciling is initiated by God, not us, through Christ Jesus. And reconciling is made possible not because of what we've done, but but what Christ has done in response to what we have done, taking the wages of sin upon Himself the cross reconciling means God no longer counts our sins against us thanks be to God because of what Christ has done for us and hear me church reconciling means God chooses to forgive us and thanks be to God he doesn't just choose to forgive our mistakes he chooses to forgive our choices too when we choose to openly rebel against him when we choose to 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 un- be unloving toward those around us when we choose to operate in, in what's in it for me rather than for other people. God chooses to forgive us. It's a beautiful thing, this reconciliation that God has initiated, that God has offered to us through Christ Jesus. And he gives a beautiful image of this through his other letters. And I just want to give a survey of them in Romans, one of my favorite books. Y'all know that. We read this in chapter 5. It says, For if, while we were God's enemies, that reconciliation, right, from enemies to friends. For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. If you jump over to the, to the church in Ephesus, he's writing a letter there, and we pick up kind of midstream. It says, in, "In this is in Ephesians 2.16, And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. Well, who is he talking about? Particularly, he's talking about Jews and Gentiles. Folks, if we look at the headlines today, what are we seeing play out in the Middle East? What are we seeing playing out in other places across the world? The hostility between Jews and Gentiles. Christ has already defeated sin and death. He's already defeated that, but we are still awaiting the final, the final of his return in which he will make all things right. And so unfortunately, that hostility we see, it's going to remain. And it troubles me. I don't know if it troubles you, but it troubles me, but I take heart in knowing And in the fulfillment of Christ coming back, he's going to put to death their hostility. He's also going to put to death our hostility. And he can do that now. You don't have to wait for his return. For Christ to put the hostility that's in your heart towards someone else or some group of people to bed, if you will. And then, in this, to the church in Colossus, let me give you one last view of reconciliation that Paul has for us. without blemish and free from accusation if you continue in your faith established and firm and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel you see when we pause and we ponder the cross of christ when we pause and ponder why is it that jesus would willingly die why he would willingly lay down his life for you and for me in the most excruciating and shameful way that on a cross well we begin to realize only then the depth of god's love for you for me and for all of humanity and the length that he'll go by sending his one and only son in order that we might have eternal life it's this it's what god has done makes it possible for us to be renewed, to be restored, to be reconciled with God. And when we begin to walk in that reality, it begins to change our relationships with one another. And we're able to relate to others in a way that God desires for us to relate with them, made possible by our relationship with Him. And it's in considering this reality, this is a significant thing, that Paul has two emphatic declarations to those in Corinth. And the first is this. Verse 20, be reconciled to God. Be reconciled. He's already initiated it. He's already extended his hand. The question is, is, have we reached up and grabbed his hands? Are we reconciled? Are you reconciled to God? And the second is this, and this is, this is kind of what we're going to get into over the next few weeks because it's intertwined with his reconciliation. Don't receive God's grace in vain. Don't receive God's grace in vain. So what is grace? Well, let me give you a short-term definition. Grace means unmerited favor. Unmerited favor. You see, it's in God's choosing to take upon himself the penalty of our sin. And what that sin sin brings to us that makes it possible for us to be restored to a relationship lost because of it. God's grace is something we cannot earn, we cannot buy, we don't deserve. But he has freely given us. And he's freely given us through his son, Jesus Christ, but it cost him his own son. You see, when we begin to pause and ponder again at the cross of Christ, when we begin to recognize what Christ did for us, when we recognize what God is saying to us, he's saying, you're worth dying for. God looks to each and every one of us today and says, you're worth. Worth dying for. Let that thing sink in. That's grace. That's grace. And sadly, however, we take it for granted. We receive it in vain. So often we settle for continuing in the sin rather than the freedom that Christ came and gave for us. Paul, and again, my favorite letter in, in Romans, he writes this, What shall we say? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? You see, in his address to the church in Rome and to his address to the church in Corinth reflects his concern that in some way believers have become a little bit complacent, if you will. They're sitting on their blessed assurance rather than standing and singing it. If you get what I'm saying, that they've taken it for vain. They've taken this gift, this precious gift, and they've refused to embrace it for what it is, and to live in the fullness of what God's grace offers for us. And it begs the question: He's writing to them then, but what about us? Are we receiving God's grace in vain? Are you receiving God's grace in vain? You know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a, a devout Christian that lived in Germany during the Holocaust, another season of great hostility, he, he wrote, and, and I think what he wrote really is something we still pl- see playing out today, and it's, it's our temptation to receive God's grace in vain. In fact, he calls it cheap grace. In, in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, he, he writes this. It's a long quote, and it's not going to be on the screens, but I want to read the whole thing for us. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field for the sake of it a man will go and sell all that he has it is the pearl of great price to buy which the merchant will sell all his goods it is the kingly rule of christ for those whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble any of y'all walk around one eye today i don't see y'all Yeah, i probably need to pluck out my own but he goes on this. It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again. In other words, it's not a once and done. You're going to hear about that as we get into sanctifying grace later on in our conversation. And, and Dietrich understood this. It must be sought again and again. The gift which must be asked for. The door at which a man must knock. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow and it is grace because it calls us to follow jesus christ it is costly because it cost a man his life and it is grace because it gives a man the only true life it is costly because it condemns sin and it is grace because it justifies the sinner above all it is costly because it cost god the life of his son ye were bought at a price And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. Incarnation, that's just simply putting flesh and blood and bones to the God we serve. That's who Jesus is. You see, so whether you're in Paul's day or Bonhoeffer's day or even our own, the truth is is I think so too often we can trivialize the significance of grace. We can and if you notice there's a key word here, he said receive grace in vain. You know, I like to say we take it in granted, but but the truth is, is we receive it. It's a gift. We have to be willing to receive it. But not in vain. Not in vain. Which leads me simply in closing today as we reflect, as we begin to to ponder this understanding of grace. The first thing is this. Have you been reconciled to God? Have you accepted the invitation? Because if not, perhaps today is a day to say yes to a gift. A gift that's offered to all of humanity through Christ Jesus. Not for some, but for all. For for God so loved what? The world. Not a particular people, not a particular place. The world. Have you been reconciled? If not, be reconciled to God, Paul says. And I'll echo him today. Be reconciled. And the second is this, simply this. For those that have become and began to grasp this, You've begun to, to embrace His grace. Don't take it in vain. Better yet said, don't receive it in vain. <laughs> it should compel us. It should compel us not only in how we live, but how we share it. Because what is it that Paul says? We're Christ's ambassadors. What is it we say every week? Sharing in hope, living with purpose for the sake of others. Sake of others. That's what Paul's saying. He says that Christ's love compels them to speak into other people's life. You see, there should be an urgency with our desire for others to know what we've begun to experience, what we've begun to receive ourselves. You see, simply put, we have grace to receive and we have grace to share. May it be so. May it be so beginning today amen Amen. would you pray with me almighty god i thank you for what can be a challenging word but a grace-filled word god i i want to just go ahead and confess to you that i know that i've received your grace in vain at times and perhaps still do but i don't want to help me help us receive it in the fullness of the way in which you offered it and it's not an it it's you your son help us to embrace that grace for ourselves and help us to be compelled like the saints that have gone before us some of which even died for the sake of their faith because they were concerned for the sake of the other help us to be that kind of people whether it be an individual a family or the church as a whole help us to be that kind of people today In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, I pray. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen.